This is an AMI podcast. This is an AMI podcast. The topics discussed in this podcast related to domestic abuse may be upsetting or triggering for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Fern Nullum, and welcome to Into You, the podcast where we put love under the microscope, shedding light on the do's, don'ts, and nightmare scenarios we find ourselves in while flirting with romance. I was the last person on earth who could actually help him, and that the only thing I could do to help him was to leave him. The only way I was going to get out of this alive was to leave him. We all come at dating from a slightly different angle, but we are often faced with very similar situations to shape up to. I should have left right then, and I didn't, I couldn't, I was so confused because how could my Romeo be treating me this way? You're talking about being in a situation where you just don't know what's going to happen next to the point where you might be killed. Dating can uncover things about ourselves we never knew before. So without further ado, let's get into you. You ready to go? I am ready. Perfect. me again back for another juicy installment of into you and today we're getting serious as we delve into the dark depths of domestic abuse while this is often a subject strategically concealed behind closed doors the risks it poses are sharp and shocking and so i was keen to learn from others experiences in order to see what lessons we could take away Today, I'll be speaking to two-time TED speaker and author of Crazy Love, Leslie Morgan Steiner, about how she got hooked on her abusive ex-husband. He was brilliant, he was really funny, and he really worshipped me from the very beginning, and it was an intoxicating cocktail. And how her relationship suddenly became a battle between love and death. He had three guns that he kept loaded all the time, and he regularly held them against my head and said that he was going to kill me. But I wanted to start by meeting Leslie just as she was, right before entering into such a scary romance, and to find out how it all began. Well, I had just graduated from Harvard University and moved to New York City to take a job at Seventeen Magazine in New York. I was very excited about living in New York and living on my own for the first time and having my first job and being independent. And I was really on top of the world. And so I was very open-minded in New York. I dated a lot and my roommate was an actress and so she did too. And it was just a really fun time and we weren't dating anybody seriously. I wasn't looking for a serious relationship. One night I met this man on the New York City subway. He too had just graduated from an Ivy League university. He worked for a big Wall Street financial firm. He was friendly and totally appropriate and funny and nice. And I gave him my first name and where I worked. Mm -hmm. He tracked me down about a month later and asked me out on a date. I kind of did everything right. I took things very slowly. I thought it was very funny that I had met him in such an unusual way. It just kind of evolved from there. He pursued me very intensely at first. But of course, at the time, I was just flattered. You know, I thought, oh, I made such a big impression on him in such a short period of time when I wasn't dressed up, when I wasn't trying to meet anybody. And it felt truly a little bit like divine intervention, like we had been meant to meet. 
This is the way that abuse almost always starts is that it's very flattering. It's charming. It makes you feel very special. And I didn't just feel like this man was pursuing me. I felt like the universe was putting us together. Abusive relationships are very seductive at the beginning. I was intelligent and in some ways very sophisticated and worldly and self-confident. And I was still very vulnerable. I think one of the myths about abuse is that it happens to women with low self-esteem who are at a very bad time in their life. And that couldn't be further from the truth. It can happen to anybody, regardless of your education, your income level, your neighborhood, your family, your religion. I mean, it sounds like he was making you feel very special. So how did you feel about him at that point? I fell in love with him. He was brilliant, probably the smartest man I've ever known. He was really funny, very self-deprecating, and he really worshipped me from the very beginning. And it was an intoxicating cocktail. And I thought, wow, I've met my soulmate. And I fell quickly and very hard. Intensity is a red flag in relationships. But how could anybody know that? We aren't taught about the difference between healthy and unhealthy relationships. And I didn't know the difference. That early relationship, even though it felt so intoxicating and wonderful, as if I were in a Romeo and Juliet performance, it fit many, many classifications of early unhealthy love. And do you think the Romeo and Juliets, the fairy tales, the Disney stories, do you think that sets us up to fall into this trap of, oh, wow, I've met my Prince Charming? I think that that is a big part of it. In almost every culture, women from a very early age are raised to think that Prince Charming is going to come and spot us and pursue us and fulfill all our dreams. But also at the same time, we are paradoxically indoctrinated with the idea that women are much more emotionally strong than men, and it is our job to nurture them and to take care of them. It's a double whammy because Prince Charming comes along, but then he is also a very broken man, and you're supposed to fix him and take care of him. And that's what happened in our relationship. Within a few weeks, Connor confessed to me that he had been terribly physically abused as a little boy, beaten and tortured by his stepfather. That was another very big red flag, but because of how I had been raised to think, well, I'm strong and I'm capable and I had a good childhood, so I'm going to fix this man. I'm going to take care of this man. I'm going to show him what true love is all about. It was almost impossible for me to see beyond all of those myths and misconceptions about what love is really supposed to be. Because I tell you, it felt exactly like what I had been raised to think that love was and that a fairy tale was. Is there any way to tell the difference between somebody who is genuinely interested in you and something like that, where it is just too much? There's a wonderful organization called the One Love Foundation, and they have a very short list of the 10 signs of healthy relationships and 10 signs of unhealthy relationships. And I look at that all the time, even now at age 55, but I wish I had had it at 22 because I think if I had been raised to know unhealthy relationships exist and can feel very intoxicating, then I would have been better armed. And I do believe that true love and a truly healthy relationship evolves more slowly and that it is normal and healthy to have some ambivalence from the very beginning on both sides. And we had none of that. I was the perfect girl. He was the perfect boy. We were going to live happily ever after and never have any problems. Mm -hmm. And that construct is inherently ridiculous. Mm -hmm. But I think it is what we are often raised to believe. And I, not surprisingly, fell for it. But I also think that if you took away all of the social indoctrination of both men and women in every society, there's 
there's still this core dynamic in that an abusive predator, which is what my ex-husband was, is looking for a victim. He was very much looking for a woman who he could seduce and dominate. And I don't mean to say that he is evil in any way. And I don't even know if he intentionally was trying to do that. But psychologically, that's what he needed because he had grown up in an abusive home where his mother had not taken care of him or protected him. And he was looking for an unusual woman. He was looking for a strong woman who he could dominate and control. I was a strong, smart, independent woman. And that was part of the appeal to him. He wanted to dominate me, but he also wanted to be taken care of by me. Mm -hmm. Do you see how from the very beginning, it's so complicated. And it's one reason why you want to take all relationships slowly so that you have time to see all of this in yourself and in your potential partner. And I believe that my friends and family could see this. They were not seduced the way I was. They could see the red flags. But you know, when you're in love with somebody, love is blind. I just felt sorry for them that they had never loved anybody quite so much as I had. And so it was quite easy to ignore their advice and admonishments. And there are very good suggestions that we slow things down. The other thing that's important to understand is that the abuser knows that the people close to you eventually are going to try to separate you from him or her. He almost had radar for the people who were the closest to me and he tried to undermine them from the very beginning so that they couldn't help me. So what was the first sign for you that maybe, maybe there was some truth in what other people were saying and this wasn't quite the fairy tale romantic relationship that you thought it was going to be oh there were so many he got very angry if any man called me and i had male friends from college and from childhood if they called he was extremely possessive that was very strange even though he was so adoring of me. Every once in a while, he would lash out with a very strange comment. And I remember once I was dressing for some event and he said, you look like a slut in that. It was just such a ridiculous thing to say, but it really hurt. And I didn't understand how this person who loved me could say these things. There was one really big red flag though, right after we moved in together. We were living in New York City. I had no place to go. And he picked an enormous fight with me. I think he said to me, well, why don't you just leave? And I left our New York City apartment. It was 11 o'clock at night. I didn't have money. I didn't have anything. And I was walking around the streets of New York. I had on a t-shirt and shorts and slippers. I was terrified. But I'll tell you at the time, I remember exactly how I felt. I was very angry at first. And then I was really scared, very scared because I didn't have a place to go. And I was ashamed to admit to any of my friends that I was wandering around the streets of New York at night. And all I wanted was to go back to him. You know, I just wanted him to forgive me and be kind and loving. And I remember I went back to our apartment and I didn't sleep at all that night. I cried all night long on the edge of the bed. The next morning when he woke up, he said, God, you were such a bitch last night, crying all night long, keeping me up. I should have left right then. And I didn't, I couldn't, I was so confused because how could my Romeo be treating me this way? It just didn't make any sense. It's like emotional, psychological whiplash when you're involved with somebody like this. You feel so good, so loved, and then so frightened and alone and abandoned. Naturally, what I wanted is I just wanted to go back to the early days. It was sort of like I was a drug addict seeking that early high. And that's why I went back that day. And that's why I went back again and again. In your mind, when he told you this is your fault, you believed that, did you? I didn't actually believe that I had done anything wrong. I knew that he was being cruel. 
And there was a part of me that didn't care. And it was soon after that, that we left New York City. I moved to a tiny town in New England where I knew nobody because he wanted us to start our married life there. I kept making these decisions that increased his control over me and decreased my agency and power in the relationship. And I wish I hadn't done that. It was a very, very dangerous thing to do. And I made many decisions that put myself in danger. But I didn't realize it at the time because I still was sort of chasing this early love that I had valued so much that was so priceless to me that I wanted to get back to it. I loved him. I wanted to help him. At some level, I recognized, and I was right about this, that he was a very troubled man. What I was wrong about is that I thought I could fix him and heal him. I could not. And it took me many years and some very, very potentially lethal situations before I was able to realize I was the last person on earth who could actually help him. And that the only thing I could do to help him was to leave him. The only way I was going to get out of this alive was to leave him. It became clear over time that he was intent upon destroying me and killing me. And I don't know to this day whether he consciously wanted to kill me, but it was clear that unconsciously that's what he was going to do one day if I continued to stay in such a dangerous situation. At this point, you'd moved to a different place. You were isolated. You didn't know people. How did it unfold from there? Right before our wedding, five days before our wedding was the first time that he physically attacked me. He strangled me. He was really out of control. And I was terrified. I knew I had to cancel the wedding. And then my denial crept in. And I started hearing this voice saying, but he's very sorry. He really loves you. You're the girl of his dreams. He's never going to do it again. He wouldn't risk losing you. And so five days later, the bruises on my neck had just healed. And I put on my mother's wedding dress and I got up in the church and I married him. And then he beat me twice more on our honeymoon. When we came back to our regular married life in this tiny town where I knew no one, where I didn't have my own money, where I didn't have my own car, he started escalating the violence and beating me on a regular basis. And then he started buying guns. In the place that we lived, they were technically legal to own them. It's not legal to threaten your wife with them, which is what he did. He had three guns that he kept loaded all the time, and he regularly held them against my head and said that he was going to kill me. It went on like this for years. Every time he beat me, I lost a little bit more of myself. I became, in some ways, the stereotype of an abuse victim. I didn't have very much self-esteem, and I was really scared all the time, and it really wore me down. It destroyed me. He was destroying me. God, Leslie, you're talking about being in a situation where you just don't know what's going to happen next, to the point where you might be killed. Did you have any kind of plan of what to do if you had to defend yourself? No, I didn't. Maybe it's not always like this, but in my case, having a plan was not feasible. My ex-husband had a black belt in karate and a black sash in kung fu. He was a very strong and powerful person. There was no way I could fight back in any way. That was not possible. We often talk to abuse victims about having a safety plan. And I think that that is very important. And in my case, the safety plan was to do whatever I had to do to survive. It's very hard for a victim to see straight in a circumstance like this, and survival was what I needed to do. Leslie had made me realize that while matters of the heart may seem so simple from an outsider's point of view, it's likely to be only the very tip of a monstrous iceberg lurking beneath the surface. 
Still, here on Into You with me, Fern Lullum, the podcast you're listening to right now, I was keen to find out what others might have to say in the aftermath of a destructive relationship. So, as is the protocol of most scientific studies in 2021, I put out a post on social media, and here are a selection of my favourite answers. The sentence reads, If you've been in an abusive relationship, I want you to know dot 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 finish the sentence maria you are the bravest person for getting through it and coming out the other side couldn't agree more maria absolutely dean you are not alone so reach out to others who understand community is so important fiona it's not your fault i promise again really important to know in these situations and finally shane you can and will be happy so don't give up all extremely encouraging comments from everyone and if this applies to you you might want to take a deep breath and just listen to those one more time Leslie had painted a chilling picture of how a fairy tale romance could quickly transform into a potentially deadly trap but of course she wasn't being held hostage From the outside looking in, walking out the door may seem like the simplest and smartest solution to this increasingly more unstable situation. So what made Leslie stick around for so long? Everybody in the world, every human being has a chink in their self-esteem, in their soul. And mine was that I didn't want to abandon him and I didn't want him to abandon me. And I really wanted to be loved in a really deep and powerful way. He had given me that, almost as if he had given me a little bit of heroin and then was saying, well, this is the price that you have to pay to get more. It was that intoxicating and confusing. I didn't have my own money. I didn't have my own car. I no longer had my own job, so I didn't have a paycheck. So there are all these layers of dependence, but at the actual core, it was a very unhealthy emotional codependence that kept me there. And it's very easy to say, why doesn't she just leave? But that is a complicated way of blaming the victim. Anybody who asks me, Leslie, why didn't you just leave? One way or the other, they're saying, you're really stupid for staying. You have no self-esteem. It's your fault. Mm -hmm. And no one, no one has ever asked me, why did this man beat you? What was wrong with him? And that's the question that really matters is what's wrong with him, that he did that to me and to other people. Mm -hmm. And that's the question that every society has to ask. We've all stayed in bad relationships. We all know exactly why you stay too long. But the million dollar question really is why would anybody hold a loaded gun to somebody's head if they love them? And why do we tolerate that as a society? Why do we let abusers like that have guns? Why did my ex-husband not go right to jail? Why is he not in jail now? Those are the harder questions that destabilize our society and are much more difficult to ask and to answer. But those are the questions that we need to answer if we really want to end abuse. And how did you eventually get out of that relationship? I was very, very fortunate in that I had friends and family who recognized what was happening. Many of them didn't know what to do because they were scared and they didn't 
understand how complex abuse is. And instead of getting angry at him, they got angry at me, which is a natural response, but really unproductive. But I was really fortunate that I had two friends who didn't get angry with me, who tried to help me and who did help me, who confronted me about the changes they saw in me and offered to help. And it still took me years more to leave. But because I had those two friends who understood what was going on, who had broken the silence themselves and were willing to talk to me about the abuse that they knew I was experiencing, it was sort of like I had a lifeline back to sanity. Once they broke my denial, it became much harder to stay. And slowly, I was able to rebuild myself and educate myself about the dynamics of abuse. And that's when I really started understanding I couldn't help him. And it took a long time for me to get to the point where I knew I had to leave and then to take action to leave. He, in some ways, made it easier in that there was one final beating where it was just very clear that he was going to kill me. He came within seconds of strangling me to death. I was unconscious for most of the beating. It lasted for hours. You know, I was on the floor for a lot of it. He had ripped off my clothes and he was kicking me and beating me and using the guns. And that's what it took to really convince me that it was him or me and that he was going to kill me if I stayed. And the only reason I'm here to talk to you today is that in that really terrible moment, that very dark moment when I was lying on the floor of my own bedroom, being beaten by a man who I thought loved me. I chose me. I really said to myself, I know I don't want to leave him. I love him. I feel sorry for him, but I'm going to leave him because I deserve better than this. And that night is the night that I left him. After he was done, I convinced him to leave the apartment. For the first time ever in our relationship, I then called the police. They helped me. I filed a restraining order. I told every member of my family, every one of my close friends that I had been lying to them for years. I broke the silence again and again, and I had a an army of support in my community among my friends, family, and complete strangers like the police officers or the locksmith who came to help me or the domestic violence advocate who went to family court with me. I had an incredible amount of support because that's what it takes to leave. It was very difficult to leave and to leave safely, but I managed to do it. But of course, the story doesn't end there. How did you feel after after you'd taken that step and left. I still had a fair amount of denial, and so I wasn't afraid. I probably should have been because it's the most dangerous time in an abuse victim's relationship is when they've left. 70% of domestic violence homicides happen after the victim has ended the relationship, usually within the first week. So I went away to another city for about 10 days, and then I came back and I was careful. I had a restraining order that I kept with me all the time. He stalked me for a period of time. There were moments that were frightening, but I got through it. I got through it by telling the truth, by letting people know that I needed protection. And that helped a lot. And then after about six months, I was able to take a job in another city permanently and to really put a physical barrier between us. I was able to rebuild my life. And I very fortunately had good mental health advice at the time. And I looked at myself and I was very determined to not ever repeat that mistake. I remarried a man who was not abusive, who I had three kids with. People who have been in abusive relationships, it's not a life sentence. Most of us learn the lesson rather quickly. We don't ever want to repeat that again. I knew that I had just picked one wrong person, that it wasn't that the whole human species was abusive and that I needed to take the next relationship very slowly and do things differently. It wasn't as hard as people might think. I wanted to be in relationships again and I wanted to have children and I wanted to have a very full life. I didn't want this one early trauma to define the rest of my life. I don't feel scarred by it anymore. I feel in some ways very grateful for it because I learned so much about myself and about relationships and people. Is there a common pattern of abuse that we can look out for either for ourselves or for those around us. 
almost every abusive relationship is like this. That at the beginning, it's a fairy tale, very seductive, romantic. The person seems like everything you've been looking for. And then there's the isolation stage, geographical, physical, financial, emotional. And then usually what happens is they introduce the threat of abuse. If you don't leave then, they introduce actual abuse. And then if you don't leave at that point, the cycle repeats. My ex never apologized. He never admitted he'd done anything wrong, but it was back to the funny, loving, supportive partner I knew. And then we'd have a period of quiet and it would start again. The abuse always gets worse. If somebody has hit you once or strangled you or pushed you downstairs, they are going to do it again. What I say, which is a very hard advice to take, is that if somebody has hurt you in any way, you have to leave now because it is going to get worse. And if you have children, one day they are going to hurt the children. And so that is the pattern. And the final step in the abusive pattern is to kill. That is what would have happened to me if I had stayed. There's no doubt in my mind that he would have killed me if I had stayed with him. Having been there yourself, Leslie, what would you say to someone who feels like they might be in an abusive relationship right now? The thing that is really interesting about abuse is that once you learn about it, you cannot unsee it. What happens all the time is that people who start to learn about abusive dynamics, they start to look at all the relationships in their life in a different way. Information is the best inoculation you can have against abusive love. To talk about it yourself, to talk about it with your friends and family. If you have children, talk to your children about abuse. Breaking the silence is the most powerful thing that we can all do to avoid abuse. And it's the simplest thing. Anybody can do it. Anybody listening to this podcast right now is doing it. And if you take it a step further by talking to the people in your circle, whether your coworkers or your parents or your roommates about what you heard today, you're taking a really powerful powerful step in ending abuse dynamics. This is how we end it, simply by talking about it. And it's amazing that such an enormous intractable problem can be solved just by talking. What does a healthy relationship look like? And why do you think it's so easy for us to fall into unhealthy ones? Healthy relationships tend to be characterized by a comfortable pace, by mutual trust, by honesty, transparency, fun, respect. It's actually in some ways quite simple, but it's really difficult when you're idolizing somebody. And also I look at my own behavior. Am I treating the people in my life in a healthy way? We all do unhealthy things. It's just that abusive relationships, their foundation is the unhealthy, at times intoxicating drama of love and betrayal and heartbreak and then love again. And if you throw really intense sex in there, it makes everything so confusing. You know, we're human beings. We're vulnerable to these things. It's a tricky thing to avoid, but it's entirely possible to avoid it simply by talking about it and learning about it. Mm, Everything you say, Leslie, is just so powerful and it absolutely hits the nail on the head. And what you've just said leads nicely into my last question, which is what has this relationship taught you both about yourself and about relationships and people in general? I've met thousands of domestic violence victims. What we all have in common is a really big heart. So what I've learned is that I have a very big heart and that I'm a very passionate person and I really love strongly and deeply. And I have learned to see that as a great strength in myself, but also as something that I have to protect myself from in a way. And I think we tend to not talk to kids about unhealthy relationship dynamics, and it's a big mistake. We need to talk about healthy versus unhealthy relationships with 
kids starting very young because they already see it. They see bullies at school. They see, you know, sometimes in their home life or in, in other parts of their lives on television. And if you can destigmatize abuse from the very beginning, you're giving children a lifelong tool that they can use to have healthy relationships in their life. So I would say to people, talk about this, even with the littlest people in your lives. I've learned that I'm very resilient, that victims in general are incredibly strong and resilient people, and that there's so much hope here that anybody can get out of an abusive relationship and that we all can rebuild our lives and have a life completely free of violence and the abuse dynamics that we've been talking about here. It's not normal. It's not love. And that everybody deserves to have love free of violence and abuse. Love is supposed to be a good thing in your life that makes you feel grounded and solid and better, not crazy and terrified. Like you have to lie to all of your friends and family in order to keep the relationship. Leslie had highlighted the importance of both education and speaking out about this subject. If you or someone you know is experiencing domestic abuse, help is available. There are links in the show notes for resources in Canada and the UK. Next time, I'll be speaking to a male victim of abuse, Andrew Payne, about the moment he realised what was really going on in his marriage. She said to me quietly, Andrew, do you realise this is domestic abuse? And that was the first time anyone ever used those words. I was quite shocked. And why he had to clear his head in order to find his feet again in love. Trying to get to a point of forgiveness and inner peace, it will help you in a future relationship because you're not consumed by bitterness, which leads to self-pity, which is not helpful. As always, I want to hear from you. What did you learn from Leslie's experience? And how do you spot an unhealthy relationship? Leave me a comment and let me know. For now, though, you've been listening to Into You with me, Fern Lullum. Special thanks to my guest, Leslie Morgan Steiner, whose links will be in the show notes. Also to Joshua Holland and Sam Robinson for technical support and to the manager of AMI, Andy Frank. Leave me your feedback at feedback at ami.ca. If you liked what you heard, make sure to search for Into You on your favourite or indeed any podcast distributing platform and subscribe for more episodes coming your way on the first Thursday of every month. Yep, time to start counting down the days again. <sighs> this was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.